I had someone a couple of months ago biking past me, listening to music. That person was obviously very happy. We had eye contact and then she smiled. And it just made me so happy. And like for the good half of that day, I was a bit on like endorphins or uh, slightly happy. This is Jenny Gredway from Sweden. She's a strategic designer and the author of the book Reopening of a City. And I've uh, recently started talking about urban kindness as something that we might need to explore a bit more. Like what's the actual value of me smiling at someone that I don't know when I walk out of my house towards school with my daughter every morning? Well, I guess the value of a smile exchanged between two strangers in the big city can never be overestimated. But how often does a simple everyday event like this happen? The truth probably is that it varies from city to city. Because every city has its own atmosphere and its citizens their own mindset. In fact, that's often the case for specific neighborhoods too. All over the world, cities are getting more and more fragmented. And people living in different neighborhoods have less and less in common. In this episode, we look at how we can recreate common ground in our cities. We get fresh examples from the Nordic cities of Aarhus and Malmö. And we ask how city planners and architects can influence the mental state of inhabitants in increasingly diverse cities. I'm Josefine Falkwarts, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. We are now in a moment of time where we have seen that the last 10 years, some of the plans that were made before are taking form. This is Annemette Boyer, city architect of Aarhus, the second largest city in Denmark. We see new, new kinds of neighborhoods. We see much taller buildings that we are used to. And that challenged the whole mental picture of what is Aarhus uh, for the citizens and also for the architectural sort of community. So the whole discussion about what is the identity of the of Aarhus when we have such a strong growth. Um, and that means that uh, we actually... We need to work very physically with our plans, but we also need to reimagine what is Aarhus. And I think in that uh, neighborhoods is part of the solution to understand that uh, Aarhus is uh, not an inner center and then you have, have the suburbs, but you have actually have um, this quite wonderful diversity of different neighborhoods. And when we grow our cities now, it's very different from maybe the 60s and the 70s where we put on new layers in the outskirts. Now we're developing into the city. And it means that you are working with places that people love. Um, so you need to have a much stronger conversation and a much more sort of nuanced and finer grain discussion about what is the capacity for change in these areas. Annemette is, together with Jenny, participating in this Nordic Talks event, taking place at the Oslo Architecture Triennial and arranged by the Helsinki-based organization Urban Practice. And Annemette is equally concerned with securing livability in the cities of tomorrow. So for me, 
what is happening in, with the sort of terms of growth in Aarhus is that when we have growth, we need to make sure that it creates more livability, better cities. So growth is not just about building a lot of new buildings. It's also about creating new public spaces and to nurture the diversity of the neighborhoods. We'll come back to Aarhus in a short while, but let's first hear from another city architect participating in this talk. Finn Williams comes from the United Kingdom and he loves cities, but not necessarily capital cities. He prefers to settle in the country's second largest city when he goes to live and work in a new country. Yeah, so I live most of my life in London, East London, but I've always been drawn to live in cities uh, that are somehow down to earth, a bit rough around the edges, have an energy, a dynamism, uh, cultural creativity. So lived in Glasgow, not Edinburgh, Porto, not Lisbon, Rotterdam, not Amsterdam. And and now, just over a year ago, moved to Malmö, not Stockholm. <laughs> and for me, uh, the reason, I think one of the reasons I've been drawn to those cities is that the, the challenges of cities that may on the face of it not be aesthetically beautiful, but have a, a, a really thriving energy to them, is what excites me about, uh, about urbanity. But also those cities tend to have some challenges in terms of um, spatial inequalities. And for me, a lot of my career has been about trying to establish an equality of quality. Uh, and that talks very much about what Anna Meta has also mentioned around understanding each neighborhood uh, in its own rights. So today, Finn lives in Malmo, where he works as a city architect. Malmo has around 350,000 inhabitants, almost exactly the same size as Aarhus. And for a city architect, Malmo is an exciting place to work. Malmo is technically the most segregated city in Sweden, but at the same time, it has so much of what I love about cities. Uh, it's very fast growing, about the same size in terms of population as Aarhus. Um, 50% of the population is under the age of 35, and uh, there are 180 different nationalities. And I think there aren't many cities of that scale in Europe that have such a kind of visible, tangible diversity to them. And um, for me, Malmö is a place where we can show a, a new model of more diverse urbanism for Sweden, possibly even for Scandinavia. Things have always happened first in Malmö because it's the point where Sweden meets the rest of the world, for better or worse. Um, that brings new ideas, new initiatives, new people. Uh, and uh, I'm... I'm very excited about being working in a city in an authority that's kind of continuing to look to be first. Before we dive further into how Malmo and Aarhus deal with different neighborhoods, let's just get the general picture. How have Nordic cities traditionally been planned and how is it done today? I think The discussion about social balance and so social uh, segregation is very much connected to the understanding of how do you belong into the city. Uh, so appropriation, democratic rights, uh, democratic conversations, um, and also where are you to allowed to be, not as a not as a sort of as a rule, but where do you feel that you uh, you are welcomed. And I think in that sense, I think you're very much right. It's about um, 
where do you feel okay being? And so one thing is about housing, for example, where can you live and where can you afford to live, which is really, really important and something that we try to address through rules that we need to have 25% of social housing in all new areas. But when we talk into this urgency in, in terms of so, sort of so, social inclusions and diversity, I think actually also this feeling that there's places that you are more welcome than others. And it's actually not just, it's a feeling. So I think in that sense, having the feeling that all the neighborhoods are welcoming everybody. Uh, it doesn't mean, mean that this is, feels like your neighborhood, but you're welcome to go there. And there is some openings in these areas. And I think actually that's one of our biggest challenges, that we don't have this mobilization or we don't have this feeling of being welcomed into to everywhere. Looking at it from the outside, Finn believes that inclusion and integration is understood differently in Great Britain and the Nordics. I come from London, which is a city where integration is when you can express your difference. But the idea of integration in Sweden still seems to be an idea where integration is where you are culturally the same as everyone else. According to Finn, much of the problem is to do with the layout of the cities in the Nordics. We have a a kind of well-established, good, average model of urbanism in Sweden, which is the quartierstad, these perimeter blocks um, that have been rolled out across the country and are kind of, kind of what everyone agrees seems to work. And if we see a piece of city that doesn't comply with that best practice urban norm, there's a kind of instinct to think maybe we should change that. So whether that's a, an industrial neighborhood. Uh, or whether it's a million program on broaden um, planned in the 60s and 70s in Sweden. Million programmet, or the million program in English, was an ambitious public housing program implemented in Sweden between 1965 and 1974. The aim was to make affordable, high-quality housing available to all Swedish citizens. The program aimed to construct one million new dwellings over a 10-year period. And actually, it succeeded. The Million program was the most ambitious building program in the world at the time, producing a large amount of buildings and housing blocks that look very much alike. But Finn thinks there's a need for new ways of thinking. What we've been trying to practice in Malmö is, is, a, is kind of waiting before jumping to those judgments. Um, trying to avoid getting into a situation where we're looking at areas from the outside, from the top down, from an aerial view, and really looking deeper at the values and qualities of what's there and using that as the starting point for development, um, whichever neighbourhood we're working in. Um, for, for me, coming as a bit of an outsider to Sweden, uh, Sweden has a lot to be very proud of around the level of equality Uh, the social economic that the country managed to achieve, particularly in you know 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, and Million Program it was an expression of that, for better or worse. It was an incredible program, but at the same time, uh, I think that that idea that somehow there is one good average persists and is slightly problematic in the reality of how um, society works in a place like Malmo today, and um, I think. To really release Malmö's potential, this incredibly young, diverse population with loads of energy, different perspectives from around the world, global connections, 
we need to find a form of architecture, a form of urbanism that, uh, that recognizes what's positive about difference and go from being a, a city that is very proud of tolerating diversity to the city in Sweden that's most proud of celebrating diversity. When making changes, it's also important to think things through thoroughly. Jenny agrees with Finn's approach of not jumping to conclusions too quickly. This is going to sound a bit strange, but I try to be naive, which is like uh, try to take like a step back uh, and almost like pretend that I don't know anything about this work uh, to be able to look at it from as many different perspectives as I can. Um, because I believe that's very healthy. I think that's what where we are. Like we need to do that. Uh, and like continuing a bit what uh, you said before as well, like we're, Scandinavian cities are rich cities. Like we have a good economy. We're very privileged. And with that comes uh, maybe a sense of also having too much time, for example. Um, perspectives in time and economy, I find super interesting. I mean, are we planning too much? Are we, I mean, even sitting here today, I mean, not every part in the world have that possibility. What does that make to our cities? Like, are we imposing too many ideas um, and with that as well are we therefore removing joy or are we removing some kind of natural kindness in in how to behave with your neighbors and citizens and I mean those kind of dialogues uh, yes very strategic in a sense um, a bit emotional and and wide um, but I think they're important to have in the time and space that we are that's interesting. Can it simply be counterproductive to make too many plans? This is Enemita's response. For me, the conversation is more that sometimes we're using too little time mm. and sometimes we're using too much time. I think what we should uh, move towards is being better at, at having some very clear in intentions with an area and also to be bold enough to put in some physical qualities that could be a new park or new urban space or something collective or something that we find this is a very important quality, physical quality that can sort of hold on to uh, the intentions that we want to bring into this area. But having that very strong intention can also make us a little bit more free on the other areas to sort of put take hands a little bit away and to see what is the spontaneity of this area. At one point, Enemeda looked into the potential of smaller industrial areas from the 60s and 70s. These areas are now often placed in rather central positions because cities have grown around them. What is really interesting about them, at least in Denmark, is that they're sort of, they've been built in the outskirts of the city. But they're usually they're actually the connection between uh, some of the existing sitting and the hinterland or the, the, the open spaces, or they're sort of being starting to be pushed into uh, sort of the city grew around them. But what's really important is that because these are only made for industries and some of the industries doesn't fit in there anymore, it becomes like a free zone. So we 
when we talk about them, we think it's an industrial area. But when I walk around there and I take my notes and I sort of look into this finer green, there's all kinds of wonderful things. I mean, there's stand projects, karate clubs, uh, new startups. So I think we need to have these spaces in the city that has this uh, room for more spontaneous uh, um, uh, development, more organic development. So I think it's true that sometimes we take too much time planning and other times it's too little. But we need to be much more focused on what is that we really want not to succeed with and what can we see, how can this develop? I think we need to be more clear in that. Finn agrees with Anna Mitte that there should be more focus on when to plan and when not to. For me, it's it's whether we think of planning as something that limits possibilities or something that opens them up. My old boss, Ram Kulhas, talk, talked about architecture as something that exploits opportunities. And planning is something that actually keeps opportunities open. And I think if we if we remember that really good planning is about allowing for lots of different scenarios, and really good planning isn't a linear, very long and slow process, but can be quite iterative and experimental, then we could plan a bit more, I think. But we could certainly do with less of the very fixed, very slow and very time-consuming linear planning. So what is the right thing to do? When should a municipality step back and when should it intervene? This is Anna Mitte. I think it's a, a discussion from place to place, but it's also a mindset. It's a, it's a mindset about setting some spaces free uh, and saying, okay, If we if we feel that I really like the way that you talk about the energy of the city, Finn, uh, that uh, what is the energy of this place, or what is the atmosphere, or the will of the place, and can we give space for that? I mean, and just pro- and also help provide, be sure that it's easy to get the permissions, and maybe if it's needed something, we can sort of um, you know provide the things that we ask that is asked for. So giving spaces uh, free is actually very important. In Malmo, one of the most well-known examples is the neighborhood Rosengård. And when Finn moved to Malmo, he knew that this was one of the neighborhoods he was going to work with. So he decided to move there. When I moved to Malmo, I made the active decision to live in Rosengård while I'm there, partly because uh, I was conscious that It has such significance from outside the city as a neighborhood that kind of defines everything that seems to be bad with Malmö. Um, and I wanted to see if it was really that bad. Of course, it's not. It's one of the most the quietest, friendliest, most gentle green neighborhoods I've ever lived in. Um, but also partly because I was conscious that actually as a as an industry and even as a planning department, we lack um, lived experience of, of many of the areas we're, we're working in. So. A uh, big part of understanding an area is um, realizing that the true understanding of it is there uh, on the doorstep of the places we're working and that we need to bridge the gap between the people who are making those decisions and the, and the people who have the, the understanding. Now, of course, there's engagement, participation um, you can do to kind of patch up that difference. But fundamentally, more structurally, we need to make sure that there isn't a gap in the first place. This has led to a change in the way city architects work in Rosengård. We do lots of things like insist on holding all our meetings in the place. 
rather than sitting in the town hall. Um, then we take a, a lot of time at the beginning of the project just to, to stop and look and listen um, at what's already there and not look at all the problems, but look at all the values of a place. And then we work collectively with people from that area, as well as all the actors involved in the project, to try and define what makes that place unique and come up with um, a set of principles or a, a hesitate to use the word vision. It's not really a vision, but a, a statement about that place that can only be written about that place that captures what makes it different. Um, and then hold that as a thread throughout everything we do. Uh, and then um, we challenge all the developers and external actors that are coming in to really absorb uh, what's special and positive about that place. And so in Drawls and Gord, there have been previous plans that perhaps try and make Drawls and Gord look like somewhere else in Malmö or somewhere else in Sweden. But what we're trying to do now is make Drawls and Gord even more Drawls and Gord. From her position as a co-director in the company Dark Matter Labs, Jenny is looking more broadly at the topic. And this is her advice for a new approach to the reopening of cities. I think uh, it might also be time to just look at um, people as as human beings, like all of us. There are so many small things that we don't really look at from from that perspective. So what is the actual value of us just smiling a bit more to, towards each other rather than uh, focusing on geothermal uh, energy? Uh, could we? Could we? No, but could we do that kind of uh, economic uh, balance? It would be interesting to to see. Anemeda agrees that there can't be a tendency to only look at numbers and statistics when describing neighborhoods. We have sort of certain numbers where we can say, okay, how is it going in our neighborhoods? In term, and with this, you look into economy and so forth. And in that sense, we can use some of these numbers to be aware of how is things going in our city. But I think it's quite important to be critical about the numbers because it doesn't mean necessarily that one area is going well and another area is going really bad because it can be sort of smaller uh, adjustments. But but it can bring some attention and it can bring out forward some discussions that we have some of these numbers. We've created this uh, new policy for urban quality and architecture in, the, in Aarhus. And we have in this uh, some uh, objectives. Uh, one is about the architecture should be generous. Um, and another one is about um, that and that urban quality is uh, created through the engagement of the citizens. And that could, that I think actually is quite important when we talk about these things, it's about citizenship. I think it's a very old sort of word or very old discussion, but I think it's as relevant as ever um, because it's very much about empowerment. Do you feel that you're part of the city? Do you feel that you are, you belong? Uh, Do you feel that your voice is sort of is relevant? So Anemeda Finn and Jenny agree that more should be done to include citizens in the decision making. But how do they think we should go about it? Anemeda says it's often the small things that make a big difference. We invite our citizens in, in an in area to to say, okay, uh, how could this develop on the on the long term? 
But I know at the same time that some of these people in the room have been fighting to have, you know, like a small path or a bench or like a small thing for a long, for a number of years. And I think, okay, if they can't get that little thing, how can we ask them to be part of a huge, you know, very abstract sort of discussion? So I think it's also very much about listening to the needs of the place and also taking serious that sometimes it is actually the right bench put at the right place or giving access to this area or um, having a safe road to school or something. Sometimes it's actually small things that makes you feel that you are a part, that you're being listened to, that you have this expertise of your area and that can make changes. Um, so in that sense, I think it's uh, this diversity and inclusion is very much about um, do you actually feel that you're included in your in your in the discussion and including in the included in the decision making, uh, both in the big things, but also very much in the small decisions. Here's Finn's perspective. It's difficult to talk about inclusion without asking who's being included in what and too often we use the words inclusion to say that we have a system that we think other people should be included in. Um, but what about us as professionals being included in a neighborhood like Rosengård in a conversation we're not involved in? The inclusion works both ways in the same way that I hate the phrase hard to reach groups because they're there, you know, they live there. Well, they work there, it's, it's us who are hard to reach. So for me, um, it's more useful to think about what do we actually need to do our job well? Um, what what kind of understanding, lived experience, knowledge, perspectives, backgrounds do, do we need to be good planners? And finally, another little reflection on city life from Jenny. It is that short walk every morning from my home to the school, which is 200 meters. And I think that's uh, what we all have. We all have those little routes, the daily routes that we that we take every day. And then uh, in Sweden, you don't get any contact with anyone. Those 200 meters is me and my daughter and that's it. But then one day, and we pass this, there's a tattoo studio and uh, an older man who works in there. One day he was outside cleaning his window. And just when we pass, he just turns around and he asks me like, should I take the top as well? That was it. (laughs) And I'm like really perplexed. And I was like, no, I think it's fine. And then we kept walking and it was a conversation. It felt like it was like a husband-wife conversation, (laughs) but it wasn't. And we've never really said hello or anything. And I don't know, it's just such a strange feeling. But I felt like that's what I want. That's what a good neighborhood is. Like when you you just reach out and you talk and you share and you live and, and that's it. In a funny way, Jenny's story is a good example of what you and I can do as citizens to improve life in our neighborhoods, and also an example of what city planners and architects should keep an eye on when planning the future of our growing cities. Hopefully the new attitudes gaining ground, at least in Aarhus and Malmö, could be an inspiration to city planners elsewhere, helping their efforts to find common ground in the diversity of their cities. Be sure to follow Nordic Talks on LinkedIn and find more information on upcoming events, new podcast episodes and much more. 
I'm Josefine Volkfass. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>